The following content is provided by MIT OpenCourseWare under a Creative Commons license. Additional information about our license and MIT OpenCourseWare in general is available at ocw.mit.edu. Okay, welcome back. We're going to uh, go through a very specific example of association studying illustrating this extremely important statistic, the chi-squared statistic. In the simplest case, that simple case will be a single allele combination, uh, two alleles, uh, and two possible uh, phenotypic outcomes, HIV resistance and HIV uh, non-resistance. So to set up this association study, which would be you know, computational, let's talk a little bit about the biology here. We have uh, all viruses need to get into your cells somehow. HIV um, has uh, a number of proteins to which it binds on the surface of your cell. These proteins are not there, not designed to bind HIV. They do something else. This is in a family of chemokine receptors. This is involved in uh, intracellular signaling. And so it's a receptor normally for these uh, chemokines. Uh, but it is also a receptor for the, H, uh, for the virus. And uh, in the human population, as we alluded to earlier, there are two, at least two alleles, two common alleles. One of them, the top one, capital CCR5, is uh, have this long re open reading frame, and this you could translate uh, by your Perl script that you wrote for the problem set, and that's uh, the DNA sequence is in the middle here, and the protein sequence derived from it is on the top strand, and uh, that's the capital CCR5, and the little delta or deletion CCR5 is below it. You've locked out 32 base pairs, which is not an integral multiple of three, and so as you know from last lecture. That means it's going to be a different genetic code, not only at every point downstream. It's going to be frame shifted, so you get a whole new set of amino acids for the, for the entirety of uh, the rest of the, the carboxy terminus. So this in black here, so we've shown, showing here in the single letter code, a somewhat realistic folding of the schematic folding of the protein, showing here a disulfide between two cysteines, you know, transmembrane region, we have these hydrophobic uh, alpha helices. And finally, the black uh, amino acids at the C-terminus, the, the, the end of the protein, are all substituted in this deletion mutant. Now, that is suffic sufficient to cause resistance to the virus. It probably has some effect on its ability to bind chemokines or react to them or in some other way. And presumably, this is not... Uh, a, that there is some deleterious effect that we do not know about. But in any case, we can assess this, we can, determine, we can make a genetic assay for this, and we can look in uh, human populations uh, for their resistance to HIV and for their presence of either two alleles of uh, the resistance or two alleles of the susceptible. Uh, now, I'm kind of biasing you here in this. We haven't done the association study. I really shouldn't be referring to it as resistant and not, but it helps. I think it helps you visualize it. Uh, we'll be rigorous enough in the next slide. So here is, if you, if you will, the, the big allele, 
right? It's, it ha- it's the original, it, it, it's the non-deleted allele. So when you PCR, do a PCR assay where you're amplifying with two primers across the, the region that could be deleted or not, you'll tend to get a large amplification product. You prime synthesis until you get <coughs> something which is 403 base pairs. And there's enough of it that you can display it on electrophoretic gel, and it migrates slowly because it's large. The, the, if you have a homozygote for the deletion allele, we'll not call it the, the HIV resistance allele just yet, um, then you'll get a 371 base pair PCR product. Um, and if you have the heterozygote, you'll get both the large and the small allele represented on this electrophoretic assay. A very simple, very robust DNA PCR-based <coughs> assay. <coughs> so now, let's ask whether one allele or the other uh, is more abundant in people which are observed to be seropositive or seronegative. Seropositive means that they have circulating antibodies in their serum which uh, react positively to the HIV virus. And so that's <coughs> not necessarily, but it's commonly as- associated with being heavily exposed to the HIV virus and therefore basically infected. Ser- seronegative means that you um, uh, are, it's an indication that you're resistant. Now we could do this as a two by two matrix here of, a, of alleles versus outcomes. Or we could do it as a three by two where we have genotypes versus outcomes. The three genotypes are uh, big, big, little, little, and big, little, heterozygote. But let's just do it, let's keep it simple in terms of alleles. If there is a selective advantage or if there's a, uh, a perceivable association between the seropo- seropositive, seronegative, and the allele, you should be able to see it in both the, the genotype or it's just the allele. The allele is simpler as a two by two matrix. And so these are the data, just these, these four boxes here. The, the big allele uh, is 1278 observed negative and 1368 observed positive for a total of 2646. You can see that there are fewer uh, total in the population surveyed of the uh, deletion mutant. This is consistent with the claim that I made all along. It's about 9% in general human population, and it's 9% of this population. That's, that's good. Um, but now you have to correct for that. You need to, uh, to uh, you can't just ask, is it more frequent here or not? You have to correct for the actual uh, frequencies in the population. And the way that's done is you, you calculate a, a, uh, another table, which is the expected uh, number of each of these combinations of big with zero negative, big with zero positive, and so forth, under the assumption that it's completely random. In other words, you know the allele frequencies in the population, but just say that they just randomly associated with whether it's zero positive or zero negative. You use these totals here and the frequencies in the population to generate this, this expected under the random assumption. And then you look for deviation of the real ones, of the observed versus the expected. Now, if uh, uh, so, any deviation between the expected and the observed is going to be significant in this. Um, so, 
you want to do is take the difference between the observed and expected. So we're working on a statistic here, a, 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 a type of measure that will determine how far from expectation are the observations on the left-hand side of the, in this 2x2. Uh, and so every, for every square in the 2x2, you find the corresponding expected number and you subtract it. That's the starting point. But you, you, you don't care whether it's negative or positive. You want, it, you, you want to make it positive, so the trick we'll often use is to take the square of that. So you can take the absolute value. You take the square for the chi-square, oddly enough, and then you want to put it on some kind of standard scale so that when you do a chi-square for any kind of phenomenon, you'll be able to compare. And the way you do that is you divide by the expected number. In other words, this puts it on, you know, if, if these numbers were really huge, this would uh, bring them down. Um, they're very small, it'll, it'll bring them to the same point. And so you take the sum over all the squares in here, and that's 15.6. And that's saying that it deviates um, uh, from the expectation by this amount, normalized uh, you know, as a sort of a fraction of the expected. Now, to determine just a little uh, sidelight on the chi-squared, in order to determine the probability of 15.6 being significant. What does that mean? Okay, 15.6. You want to turn this into a probability. Because probabilities are sort of the common language that we can all share our surprise at this being different from expected. The null hypothesis is that this is the same as expected. And so in order to evaluate it, you have to ask how much freedom there is, the degrees of freedom. This is jargon for if uh, how many different ways can, uh, can these two numbers vary. Well, since we know the total number, if we ob when we observe the number of CCR5, that fixes uh, in the columns uh, the number of deletions, right? Because it's just going to be the, the number of big alleles taken from the total. So in a way, the degrees of freedom is just one. You, you fix this one number, and the other one is, is now known. So, and the same thing is true for rows and columns. So the rows minus is, is just one, and the columns is one. And so the whole degrees of freedom is the product of rows and columns, which is one. So you plug this in. If you look in your standard statistic, well, your favorite statistical book or, or software package, Excel or whatever, you plug in this chi-square value and this degrees of freedom, and you get this probability, which is very significant. Generally, better than uh, 5% means that you will, you will only be wrong 20% of the time. Some people would prefer to, you know, this, this means you'll be wrong, you know, eight, eight times in 10,000 or something like that, but very, very infrequently. Okay. Now, this is great. This is a two-by-two two matrix. We found an association. We have a plausible uh, molecular mechanism in the previous slide. But how was it that we pulled CCR5 out of this rabbit out of the hat? I mean, why CCR5? There are, you know, 40,000-some genes in the human genome. Yes? I was curious as to what is what population is this? I mean, in which there's slightly more zero positive than zero negative people. This must be a particular. Oh, the, yeah. These these are these this this is, is a case control study where you try to get a, a roughly equal number of negatives and positives that are matched for socioeconomic group okay. and race and gender and things like that. So that's a, that's a setup. But the, but then the. The, then, if there's not a huge uh, 
risk ratio for the two alleles, then you'll expect them to be close to the population frequency, which means that you can't just look at it on inspection and say, oh yeah, all the seropositive are the big allele. That would, we would need a chi-square at that point. But you know, this is pretty close to the population frequency, and so that's why we had to uh, do the chi-square. Okay. But the, 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 the question that, that, we're, that we're taking now is, how did we pick CCR5? I mean, I introduced this as being a putative receptor for the virus, but one of the first pieces of evidence that this was a putative receptor for the virus was this sort of association study, okay? So how was it that they picked a chemokine receptor? Well, you could say, well, some kind of hunch about chemokines being involved in immunology and immunology being important in, in, in fighting viruses, but that wouldn't suggest that it's an actual receptor. Um, you know, I think we, these are, there's, there's all kinds of inspired guesswork. There's biochemistry happening behind the scene and so on. But let's take, let's just put that aside for a moment and take the more general case that you wanted to test not just this one hypothesis that CCR5 is involved, but you've implicitly tested or explicitly tested every gene. You've gone through every gene and you've taken uh, either the most common alleles or you've sequenced your own genome and you found the alleles that you have whether they're common or rare, you don't care, and you want to ask what's the, what's the association. This is, uh, let's consider the upper right-hand panel here where we have some risk ratio, a fairly subtle one, 1.5. Remember we were talking about risk ratios of 75 in the case of autism. This is just 1.5, very subtle risk ratio, just like you know, I think in the last uh, one could have been a, a, a subtle risk ratio. Um, and uh, what we're, the x-axis is going to be the number of alleles that, you, that you're hypothetically testing. This could be related to the number of genes that you're testing, or it could be more than the number of genes that you're testing, because you can have more than one allele per gene that you might want to test. Is this allele of this gene important in this disease, or is this other one? You know, for example, sickle cell is important, but various other hemoglobin mutations are not. This chemokine deletion is important, and maybe another one isn't. Many of the chemokine mutations will be neutral. Okay, so as you increase the number of genes and alleles, from here's 10 to the fourth on up, then the number of SIB pairs, in, so this is a, a, a simulation covering you know, all kinds of experiments that you could do, where you can, you can use computational methods to help guide the design of experiments. If you, did the, if you did an extensive experiment and you just happened to, to use too few patients um, and too many alleles, uh, then you may have misused your resources. You should have maybe done fewer alleles and more patients or uh, uh, something like that. And this is, provides some guidance here. But you can see that in order to get to a very large number of alleles, you need a fairly modest increase in the number of patients. And that's uh, due to the uh, sort of the exponential term that you have in... Um, in these uh, probability distributions. So you actually, but nevertheless, it's a big deal uh, uh, cost-wise going up from, say, 400 patients to um, 1,600. Nevertheless, it's, it's only linear in patients while it's, it's exponential in the number of uh, alleles you can test. So that's the good news. Uh, and you can see some of these other panels show the effect of other uh, varying other parameters. For example, here on the left, you've got varying the population frequency of the allele. Um, as you get to 
very, very rare alleles on the uh, right hand of the horizontal axis here, um, then the number of uh, uh, sib pairs, brothers, sisters, brother, brothers, uh, that you need, starts to go through the roof. And now it's, uh, it's, it's exponential on both axes, or that is to say that it's a direct relationship. Question? What's that p value? Hmm? What's that p value? Uh, that's the population uh, frequency um, that you're. Hmm? Well, in, on on the on the one we were just talking about on the left, the the population frequency is the horizontal axis, and it varies from um, near unity to 10 to the minus nine as a very rare allele frequency. Uh, on the right, the one we started with, the top right, um, th we just picked 0.5, which would be very you know, be around, around here on the left-hand end of the, of the left-hand quadrant. So you pick one of these allele frequencies, a fairly, where it's equal frequency of the two alleles in the population as where you do the rest of the simulation. You could think of all these, these, these panels could be some multidimensional display, but I wanted to take them out one at a time. And actually, I, I, I did all these, you know, in, ex, in Excel using the, the equations that are present in this uh, reference that's given on your... Uh, in the slides here. Um, a good sign of a well-written paper is for sort of average individual to be able to reproduce it. Uh, so we have uh, how many, so we've been talking about new polymorphisms. In fact, the question that came up during the break was um, if, you know, if selection and drift cause allele frequencies to fix fairly rapidly, drift in small populations, sort of normal sized populations will drift in, in you know, fairly short evolutionary times, and selection, if you have a high selection coefficient cost fixation, why do we have any allele frequencies at all? Why isn't everything fixed at 100% um, for one particular allele? And the answer is mutation. And where all these new mutations or polymorphisms come from? Actually, these should probably be called mutations because most of them have frequencies less than 1%. Well, here's a specific model which doesn't follow all the assumptions we had before, but we'll use a different, we'll use a back of the envelope calculation to give you a feeling for, for, for what is true for the, the uh, what is likely to be the case for the human population. So the human population, there's a little bit of uh, uh, unknown in some of these parameters, so you should take these all with a grain of salt. Actually, everything I say you should take, but uh, this, you know, the number of populations that, have, that we've had since a bottleneck in the human population. Maybe there were as few as 10 to the 4th humans at some point or another. Um, maybe less. Um, but since that time, there have been about 5,000 generations. And during that time, our population has now grown to 6 billion people. That's the uh, N prime and N. And uh, the mutation rate is on, as uh, mentioned earlier in response to a question, is around 10 to the minus 8th per base pair per genome, per generation. And so the genome size is about 6 billion. Coincidentally, they're the same as the population size, total coincidence. Um, then you, 10 to the minus 8 times that number of base pairs means you have about 60 uh, mutations or so uh, uh, occurring in a generation. So you've got a, a steady flow of new mutations. Now, if you take that, just roughly speaking, if you take that over 5,000 generations, you've got... 60 times 5,000, you've got a very large number, you know, on the order of 10 to the fourth uh, 
mutations that have accumulated in our population, assuming the, uh, relatively little drift because of this exponentially growing population and relatively little selection, um, then this is the number that might have accumulated. You can do subtle corrections for this uh, exponential growth. The, you know, the number of mutations you got at the beginning uh, will have higher frequency, but there'll be fewer of them because population was smaller. But anyway, you get the picture is that the, the total number of mutations in any one of this that are new since that new since 5,000 generations ago uh, will be on the order of 10 to the fourth in your body. Um, not all of them doing good for you. Um, and for each of those rare mutations, they might have a frequency of about 10 to the minus 5. Um, th there will be about uh, 10 to the 4th people on Earth that will share that very rare mutation with you. 10 to the minus 5 sounds like very rare, but when you multiply it by 6 billion people, there are a lot of people who share that with you. Okay? It's a new mutation. Okay. So the take-home is, and this is... Uh, from this reference here. Um, high genomic deleterious mutations uh, accumulate over these 4,000, uh, some large number of generations, and they would confound linkage methods and they would confound assumptions that say that the common alleles, uh, the common alleles uh, are causative. Okay, so let's say we've done an association study. Either we've done it on one gene picked one out of the hat like CCR5, or we've done it on a full genome survey, 40,000 genes, all the alleles we know of. In order to do the latter, we had to have a big patient population. Um, but let's say we've done that. Now we want to prove that that association is, that, st that great statistic that we got out, if we have a large enough patient population, is still just a statistic. That what, what will constitute proof is after we find the association, we make a copy of that mutation, isolated away from the three, uh, three million other polymorphisms that are floating around in your body, and we do some kind of test. Ideally, we would make an isogenic uh, pair of humans that only differ by this one mutation. That is not uh, generally considered medically feasible uh, uh, or, or ethical. Um, but somehow or another, you can do it on human cells, or you can do it in a uh, uh, mammalian... Uh, model system, but you have to make something that's close to isogenic, a copy of this mutation, and show that it has a phenotype that makes sense. And then, just to make sure you haven't introduced other mutations, the really uh, careful scientists will then revert that one polymorphism and show now you no longer have that phenotype. Okay, so um, let's walk through an example. Here's the third example in this lecture of uh, of a, a very specific allele where we've shown the, the molecular basis of it, and it's the second example where it's not, co it's not coding, and it's the second example where it's in a repeat. This is just to, you know, I'm not giving you a random sample here. I'm specifically biasing this towards very interesting uh, genes, very interesting d d um, traits that are associated with non-coding repetitive uh, alleles. In this case, the trait that, that got the attention of these researchers, it isn't necessarily proven uh, that this is the, the, the relationship, but the association that was studied was between anxiety-related traits, anxiety, and a polymorphism in the serotonin transporter. Oh, this is a science paper. Um, now, the next step in this is to, okay, that was found associated. There were lots of other alleles randomly uh, 
being moved around because these are humans. We have no control over who mates with who or very little. And, uh, and uh, so, so you, you get what you're, what you're given. You can do the survey as best you can. But now, in order to move it towards a mechanistic basis and uh, a proof of introducing just this one point mutation. Now, what is the mutation found in this case of anxiety relationship in this uh, serotonin transporter? It's upstream of the first RNA encoding exon 1. Uh, it is a 44 base pair deletion in a repetitive region in a, in a region which might be responsible for promote, promoting transcription. Uh, you have the short and the long allele, just like uh, in the CCR5, but in this case it's in, the, it's in a putative promoter element. And when you make this construct and you uh, hook it up to a luciferase uh, uh, enzymatic activity in vitro in, um, in cultured cells, so you don't actually have to construct a mutant human, uh, you, you can now see the long allele always produces higher levels of expression than the short allele. And these little error bars on top of each of the measures um, show your uh, statistical measure of standard deviation as we did in the first lecture. And, uh, and if the black uh, mean, which is the height of the bar, is different from the white mean by more than a couple of these standard deviations, which is the root mean square of the uh, standard deviations of each of the measures, then you call it uh, statistically significant. And that's what these triple stars mean. It's the statistical shorthand for this is statistically significant at the cutoff that we're using, say, 5%. Now, in this case, it's kind of showing off because every one of them is statistically significant um, um, by two different, uh, completely different assays here. But the point is, this does not prove that anxiety uh, is, a, is uh, meaningfully associated with this, but, it's, uh, but it does prove that this uh, repetitive polymorphism is, is uh, causally in, uh, capable of differential uh, transcription levels or uh, reporter gene. So you, by introducing it um, into a, into a, a clean uh, uh, cellular system, you can test uh, at least part of the mechanism that might be involved in the association that originally got your attention. Now, as you can see, we're getting into a fairly mature and fairly new phase of uh, human genetics. Um, some of the concepts that are used here will be useful in a variety of other systems where we have relatively little control over the genetics. But certainly in humans, it's a very large um, need. And where, where this happened historically is uh, with Mendelian linkage, which would involve very large home, uh, families with a complete pedigree multi-generation, great-grandfathers and mothers, all the way down, uh, hundreds of people in a, in, a, in a family. And that's the problem, because there aren't that many diseases for which you have large families with simple Mendelian inheritance. Common diseases tend to be much more complicated, involving multiple genes simultaneously and small families. Um, then there's linkage disequilibrium, which, uh, which is, uh, depends on these uh, common alleles, um, going, where the population has gone through a particularly small bottleneck and where uh, your common allele is a pretty good distance away from the causative one, but it allows you to map it into a ballpark and then you, then you hunker down and do the more expensive um, 
testing of hypotheses for all and look and sequencing and looking for potentially causative alleles. Once you find a potentially causative allele, something that looks suspicious, maybe something that's in a coding region that it, it's conserved, that's the first priority, despite all the counterexamples I've given. And then you go like that. But the problem is that it's you're at the mercy of the recombination that might have occurred in that population. When you get to very interesting populations like uh, you know, people of African American descent, where where the population is, is very old, hasn't passed through a population bottleneck, the link the useful linkage to equilibrium is, is on a few couple of kilobases rather than hundreds of kilobases. So it actually is hard to find things that are linked, that is to say insists, but not causatives, insist the cause of the allele. Um, Instead, you have to look directly for causative alleles. And that's where now you look for common causative alleles. Um, this has the problem that we've been talking about, which is that maybe common alleles aren't uh, often causative. They've been selected out. So then you get into the scenario of what if we wanted to look at all alleles? Well, theoretically, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, it'd be great. Um, we could do the association studies. We'd have to have fairly large populations you know, populations, but you saw it was linear with an exponential increase in the number of hypotheses, and you could rank those hypotheses by a priori likelihood and so forth. But it's expensive. And so now, the discussion now has to include a little bit of uh, discussion of the new technology that might make this less expensive, and a discussion of how we got the first genome and how the new technologies might be a little different. But we're going to do this in the context of computation in the sense of how do we deal with random and systematic errors? As we plan our strategy for getting each of our genomes, personal genome sequence for $1,000 or so, how do we choose which technology to pursue? Which ones have the lowest uh, intrinsic r random and systematic errors? So we needed to study the first genome to see what, what would we mean by random and systematic errors. How many people here know what the difference is already? A few, okay. But anyway, whether you do or not, it's, it, it, it's good for the soul to go through some real examples of this. A random mutation is something which occurs every time you do the uh, ex experiment. You get a different, muta uh, different error. And uh, uh, a systematic one is something where if you do it over and over the same way, you'll get the same error or a simple class of errors occurring more than once uh, over and over. So... For sequencing, the process involves picking something that you want to sequence, we'll call it a clone or a template, then actually doing the sequencing, and then assembling this into a meaningful uh, interpreted sequence. And that's the, this is uh, an example where we might have chosen uh, these uh, big clones, in other words, you might fragment the genome up randomly into large clones of 100 kilobases called bacterial artificial chromosomes, for example. And then uh, that's all random. And so there's a shotgun of that scale. And then we sh break it up randomly into smaller pieces, which provide us with little sequences. And then in the computer, we assemble these by methods that we'll discuss in the next lecture, um, um, which, can e which can take even fairly different sequences than assemble them. In this case, we're talking about very similar sequences. Um, and then you assemble the little sequences into big sequences, and you assemble the big sequences into even bigger sequences, and then you have the whole thing. But you can see there's a lot of opportunity for error here. Uh, we make it look simple in this slide, but we're going to talk about random and systematic errors in a moment. 
where did we get those sequences, those little sequences that we want to assemble? We, we, we're going to go through a few methods in a moment, but the most common one by far, the thing that generates 90, over 90% of the human genome sequence in the last couple of years, is capillary electrophoresis of fluorescently labeled polymerase terminated products. When you electrophoresis these things, you're separating uh, DNA fragments which are in nucleotides long from, DNA, from a DNA fragment which is in plus one nucleotides long. That's a very subtle difference as N gets big. As N gets big, it gets harder and harder to separate N from N plus one. As it does so, you start getting all kinds of errors. The total number of errors here in the uh, lower left-hand corner is the number of insertions plus the number of deletions plus the number of substitutions plus N, which is a, a uh, uh, abbreviation for no call. It means the software um, felt that it was so close that it couldn't call it at all. It just said it's an N. I don't know whether it's an ACG. It doesn't know whether it's an ACG or T. calls it an, a no call. And so if you look through this table, it shows uh, on the vertical axis for each of these six uh, hist uh, hi uh, bar charts is as you go up on the, the vertical axis, you go from very short reads where it's easy to separate N from N plus one electrophoretically to very long ones where you start accumulating insertion deletion errors, insertion deletion substitution, and N. They all go up with length. And so you can think of that as a random error superimposed on the systematic error of if you always do the experiments so that the same base pair is always at the end of your run, it's going to always have a higher random error rate. So this is kind of a combination of random and systematic error. So let's go through some examples here. We have just isolating the template to prepare it for sequencing. There are systematic errors. Um, if you have certain kinds of repeats, long inverted repeats, or certain kinds of restriction elements that the bacteria doesn't like or likes to chew up, uh, then you won't get that clone. And that would plague the early part of the genome project is you'd keep trying again and again the same way and you just wouldn't get certain clones. It's as if there was a hole there. You know that there's something there, but you couldn't clone it. Um, sequencing, hairpins uh, can form in the single-stranded nucleic acids where you're trying to separate N from N plus one. And those hairpins then fake out the, 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 the uh, gel electrophoresis and make it seem like it's much smaller than it actually is. Um, tandem repeats cause a problem in all three of these stages. Um, uh, in sequencing, they get some polymerase stuttering and, and, uh, and you get uh, little artifacts. In assembly, repeats, you're assembling by sequence, homology, uh, sequence alignment. If you have a repeat, then the repeat's going to align just as well because it's a repeat within the genome as a repeat due to experimental repeating. And so the alignment can be off. Uh, the errors that you got from these earlier steps make it hard to assemble. Polymorphisms look like errors. Chimeric clones means you've got things that, uh, that have been misassembled early on here, and so on. Okay. When we... Uh, do this random selection of big clones and random selection of little clones for sequencing, we want to know when to quit. Now, you, can, you could say, well, we're going to quit once we get it all assembled, but you need to accumulate a certain amount of data in advance before you try to assemble it. And so uh, there were various uh, calculations as to when to quit. And this is related to the Poisson distribution, but it's not exactly. And in fact, um, one, of the, one of the studies done in 1988 made some 
uh, poor assumptions uh, about the. Remember, we we limit. We mentioned it in the first lecture the assumptions of the Poisson distribution um, <coughs> that make it an approximation when it becomes an approximation to a more uh, formal distribution like the binomial. Well, anyway, that, that approximation you should be getting as you get higher and higher coverage, meaning more and more uh, experimental repeats, you'll eventually fill all the gaps. And that means you'll get 100% uh, complete coverage. And it should asymptotically approach that. Well, if you use the Poisson incorrectly, as authors did in 1988, you, you basically go off to infinity. You get you know, 200% coverage, which is physically impossible. But both an earlier study, which they ignored, and a more recent study got it right. And um, uh, these are slightly different measures, but they both converge on 100%. And I urge you to look at that if you're designing an experiment um, with simple formula. On the other hand, if you want to design the experiment with a more explicit, you eventually get to the point where an, a simple analytic formula won't do, and you have to do Monte Carlo. We treated this in the first class of uh, you know, analytic versus numeric differential equations. And in many other cases, the simulation you want to do is beyond, or is too, too hard to do analytically. So Gene Myers uh, set up, just listed all the things he thought would be, uh, could affect the uh, ability to assemble a genome sequence, the read length and uh, 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 types of, of repeats and all this stuff was simulated. And he cranked on the simulation on real human genome size projects and came to the conclusion that you could do a shotgun assembly of a mammalian genome. A company called Solera was formed. Gene Myers was hired um, as the computer guru. They put together you know, a large stable of computers, and they started doing this on the human and the mouse genome. Uh, the human genome was, in the end, not done by this method, but the mouse genome was, and it was a pretty good assembly. So the Drosophila genome, missing the Drosophila repeats, was also done by this method. So, this is scaled very gracefully from the first shotgun sequence, which was on a, a 4 kV plasmid, to, um, to mammalian-sized genomes. No mammalian genome is completely sequenced, so we can't really declare victory. But the sort of simulation that he did here um, has played out very nicely. Uh, right here in Boston, there will be, uh, you know, when we start thinking of the future of sequencing technology, we would all like, this is almost uncontroversial as to how much we desire that the genome not cost $3 billion, but it cost $1,000. And now there are a number of people who are uh, making, taking very definite steps to get us to that point. Uh, to understand systematic and random errors that can occur in these steps, let's take this didioxygel experience we've been talking about. Here you have four different colored terminators. These are where the the, the polymerase can't go any further because it, there's, no, there's a blocking group here, which is fluorescent labeled. And if the template on the far left here uh, is ready to accept an A, you'll get an A, and this N and N minus 1 will separate on this electrophoresis, and the four colors will give you this four-colored pattern where the intensity re reflects uh, good termination at that position. Um, and you can basically go along reading it uh, G, C, G, G, A, T. Now, this is in the well-behaved part. An example of a systematic error that you get in this extension occurs here in the upper right-hand corner of slide 40. Um, now you've got, because of one of these hairpins that I mentioned before, you've got a pileup of uh, seven nucleotides all at the same position. 
a completely alternative method that doesn't involve gelatinesis called pyrosequencing, and this is an equivalent that you can be done um, with fluorescent addition. Um, instead of separ separating them in time by their size in electrophoresis, you, in time you ask serially, do you want an A here? If yes, then you get a, a little green, you get a little peak uh, of um, representing the release of a pyrophosphate or the incorporation of fluorescent A. And then you ask, does he want a T and so forth? And you go along and each signal means yet yes to the answer that it's ready for that particular base. And you can see this doesn't have any problems with this uh, hairpin region. So it has a... So when you have a systematic error, you have to change the method that you're using fairly radically. The opposite strand uh, or a completely different method. Um, if you have... Uh, uh, early on, we had huge differences in intensity of the fluorophores and, difference, diff and new enzymes and new fluorophores were developed uh, by Tabor and Matthews and Glazer and so forth. And this was a huge uh, advance in making everything uniform and eliminating systematic errors. So the sort of things that are on the horizon that hopefully will be discussed tomorrow in Boston, uh, we've talked about uh, <coughs> this uh, single short number of base extensions like pyrosequencing the longer extensions in capillary arrays, which capillary arrays uh, are changing from long capillaries into microfabricated uh, chips. Um, I'll show an example of a mass spec in just a moment. You've got uh, a uh, sequencing by hybridization on arrays will illustrate uh, as a prelude, uh, as an example of affymetrics technology in this slide. Okay, so the, the idea here this is mainly for resequencing. Some of the some of the ways of reducing the cost of sequencing a human genome will not apply to sequencing brand new genomes. But they still we need to pursue them because this may be the way that we get the thousand dollar human genome, even if we don't get other ones. Um, and here you know the sequence, except there's some there's a possibility that it could be a polymorphism at any base, could be any single base substitution at any base. And so you you don't necessarily know in advance what the common ones are, or the rare ones. But you do know the canonical sequence. And so at every position, you'll make, uh, you'll make a 25-mer oligonucleotide, which will bind to a fluorescently labeled version of your genome or a piece of your genome. And this is actually developed for HIV resequencing by Affymetrics. And at this middle position, uh, you'll put in all four possible uh, uh, substitutions, T, G, C, or A. And you'll, you'll, you'll consider each possible uh, template. Uh, so if you have the template, which is, let's say these are the two alleles that occur in the human population or in your sample, um, you can have this sequence and then all the variations on it, stepping along, changing TGCA for the first base, the second base, the third base, and so forth, until you hit this one. And this is where the real polymorphism occurs. And you could have either this as the context or this as the context. And this is, this is schematically what happened. This is the real data. These are real data down here. Where you have the context of the A allele or the context of the C allele. You can have the homozygotes or the heterozygote. And uh, in the homozygous A, you can see it lights up the best, the best hybridization when you have the A in the middle position. The middle position is most sensitive to hybridization changes. And for the C, you have it in the C uh, row here. And remember, you've got all, you're changing all the bases at every position, one, two, three, four. This is the one where the middle base of the middle position is in the right context. 
This is in the A context and the C context. And in the heterozygote, you get both the A and the C. And so this has been done on HIV, it's been done on BRCA1, on mitochondria, and now they've applied it with whole wafers to the entire human genome. And this probably costs on the order of $3 million uh, or so. Mass spectrometry is another way that's used, probably not for sequencing the whole genome, but it's used for single nucleotide polymorphisms. This costs on the order of, uh, you know, 50 cents per polymorphism. If there's 3 million of them in your genome, um, that's a lot of uh, 50 cents. Um, and here's what it looks like when you read it out. Just, it's really just like electrophoresis. You can now separate uh, uh, a, an addition of an A from an addition of a G. And, uh, and the difference in mass between an A and a G, this is even more subtle than the difference of an N and an N plus 1. This is just the difference between an A and a G. It's detectable in this. In fact, it's detectable and quantitative enough that you can pool samples. This is a bit of a stunt, but it's an important stunt to show that this is really a very precise method, albeit still fairly expensive. Now, just in closing, I want to uh, give you the, the simplest possible example of, uh, of how we can search through sequences. Next week, we'll give you a much more rigorous way that you can look through sequences with very extensive differences between the sequences. But here, we're, the theme of today's talk is the subtle polymorphism differences that occur between you and me. And here, one difference, so, so generally you're looking for exact matches. And a good way to look for exact matches is, good ways are hashing, suffix arrays, and suffix trees, where you're basically, in each of these, you're looking for using a, a word, a, a word either that's built up and stored from the end, the suffix, uh, one letter at a time, or it's a chunk that you might have as a hash, and uh, it, you make up a lookup table, and the size of that lookup table is a trade-off between speed of searching and the size of the table. The size is going to be, if the word is in nucleotides long, it's going to be 4 to the n. It's going to be the storage space you have to put on disk or RAM um, to do RAM if you want to do a fast search. And so 16 is a magic number sort of in the ballpark for a human genome because 4 to the 16th is 4 billion uh, sequences you can represent. But it's a huge table. You have to have a table of... 4 billion times however many bytes you need to store uh, the positions, um, typically about 4 bytes of storage. If you cut back on this a little bit, you'll end up with collisions, where you'll have two things that have the same hash or suffix. If you make it, uh, and it, that's if you make it smaller, it'll take less space. If you make it bigger, it'll take a ridiculous amount of RAM. Okay. And then here's a kind of a uh, whimsical, uh, another example of Perl where you not only want to find all the mutations here at a very high dense, a ridiculously high density, you know, not one per kilobase, but one every few base pairs, you not only want to find them, but you want to correct them. And here the pearl does a substitution, and uh, after gene therapy, everybody walks out happy. Okay. So 